Well, welcome to the Vet Podcast for the week ending of November the 17th, 2017. Um, you're here with Brendan and Mark and for our weekly podcast. And fortunately, we've um, we've done four in a row now, Mark, and I think, well, that's a record, isn't it, <laughs> obviously, and um, I'm looking forward to our 100th episode. How ambitious is that? I don't think it's that ambitious. I think we're we're going to like just sail along to a hundred. I think, you know, two fifty. We, we'll just see where it goes. And I think we will need to have a um, some sort of pri- a giveaway. It'll have to be a giveaway, won't it? We can't have a an actual competition, but we might have a giveaway to to maybe. Um, one of our listeners, um, maybe one of the books that we recommend. And um, Mark and I were talking off air just before the start of the podcast about the fact we probably have a, a recommended book every week, and they may not be um, veterinary books. I don't think we've got one this week unless you have, Mark. Uh, can you think of one off the top of your head? No, not off the top of my head. That'll be my mission for next week. Good. So we'll do that next week. And it may not be a veterinary veterinary book, um, something to maybe get you away from vet and um, um, debrief and get out of the veterinary um, groove. Um, the numbers are amazing that we've been getting for the people subscribing, um, I think, anyway, for, for, for only the four episodes. And um, I've got a bit of a table going with the statistics that we get from the site. It lists the country. So we've got a country... Um, competition going on and until about three days ago guess where we had the most listeners and subscribers from i would not have guessed this i honestly would i would have been way way off well it was the us of a and um by a far margin over australia which is where we are from obviously um and just over the last few days australia's overtaken the US. So US listeners, um, get on to your colleagues at universities and the colleges. Um, we'd love you to get our name out there um, and get some more listeners. And the best way to do that, we think, is probably posting on the university and the college websites and contacting your veterinary um, nurses or, or technicians associations and, and getting them to spread the word. Um, what more could you want to do than listen to us rambling on, you know, on the way home or to work or sitting on the beach? I, I'll tell you what, it was very hot here today. Um, we had, I think it peaked out at around about 36 degrees Celsius. It's 8pm at the moment in Melbourne and it's still 33 degrees, Mark, and I think that's around about 91 or so Fahrenheit. Um, is it been hot up your area? It is. is you there? I'm here. Go yeah, ahead. Good, good. It is. It's it's um it's really unusual because usually it's the opposite way around. You guys in Melbourne are, are generally suffering the the um the the colder weather, though being that more southern latitude and uh and we're usually the ones that are sitting up around 35, 36, sometimes up to 40 at this time of year, but we've actually just barely cracked 21 degrees today so um it's been chilly november for us at the moment yeah i'd prefer it to be 21 at the moment where we are i think we got one more hot day then it starts to cool down again um later in the week um so today's main topic i think is a really good one it's worms um and but before we jump into that um i'd just like to talk about a couple of cases that we had in the last week or so actually one of these i was going to mention in the last podcast but i ran out of time and that was a um a euthanasia case we had um with a bird and it was a a referral euthanasia and i know i've spoken to you about this mark um previously and that our clinic for some reason or another, we do get referral euthanasias and these are cases where um, clients, we haven't seen them before and they um, bring their animal to us for euthanasia, uh, euthanasia rather than their local veterinarian um, because they've heard, I think, that we're good at putting animals down and, and providing a, a humane and an easy death for the animals. And this was a, a, a bird, it was a cockatiel, I think, that was 18 years of age um, that had um, been seen at their local vet for many years and it had multiple problems. And we just had a call out of the blue from this client um, saying they'd like to bring the animal to our clinic for the euthanasia because um, a friend of theirs had one of their unusual pets 
put to sleep at our practice and um, they found that we were quite um, kind and approachable and, and looked after them and, and were very respectful with the way we um, did the euthanasia. And I think there's a positive to this and a, a negative. The positive, obviously, is that um, it, it puts a good light on the way we do things and I think we do we do really stress the fact that it's very important to um, provide that um, euthanasia in a respectful way. And um, one of our colleagues, Robert, um, who we both know very well, um, said to me once, oh, I think he'd mentioned it in a, in a talk at one stage, that one of the things that clients remember us for more than anything else is how we deal with the euthanasia of their pet at the end of life, rather than the fact that we did that life-saving splenectomy on the animal um, during its life. And I think it's it, it's true um, with that. So so this bird, yeah, we, we our tech technique for euthanizing unusual pets is a two-stage technique. So we sedate on and anaesthetize them first before we give them the euthanasia solution. So I, I um, just literally masked down the bird with isoflurane and um, once we had it anaesthetized, the client wanted to be there when it was um, euthanized. Um, so the client was brought into the um, into the surgery and, and they got to see um, the IV um euthanasia of the bird and um, see that it was um, nice and um, gentle and the bird didn't react to it and um, they were very appreciative and as I say this was a client that we'd never seen before we may never see them again I suppose um, but they were very appreciative of the fact that we um, um, took the time to um, give them time with their pet and to um, describe the method of, um, of the two-stage euthanasia. Um, and I think you practice the same at your clinic, don't you, Mark? I think um, you've made some excellent points and, uh, and of course, it's no surprise that um, what you do um, echoes what we do very, very similarly. And I think uh, some of the points that you make are, um, are the, the critical one, I suppose, is that uh, two-stage process that we um, affect deep sedation or anesthesia before we deliver the overdose of barbiturates. And um, and I think the other thing that's really important, um, I talk to our staff, there's there's lots of times when, when we will interact with clients and um, we'll get multiple chances to get things right, but um, humane euthanasia is one of those instances where it, it's a moment of truth and you really get one shot to, to do it well. And as you pointed out, Robert's um, uh, made note, and it's clearly one of the things I've observed in clients, that, um, that this is one of the most important decisions that they'll um, make uh, concerning the care of their pets, and and it's something that stays with them for the rest of their life. The the events that surround that most most important decision, um, and uh, and and it it is a, a really gratifying thing that um, we get the opportunity to do it in such a caring and understanding way, and that we can uh, facilitate um, the process and thereby lessen the the uh, the the angst the the negative sensations, um, the grief that goes with such a decision, um, and and I think um, uh, I, I I don't think it's uh, um, an excessive boast to say that um, paying appropriate attention to um, and time to these important. Uh, uh, life events for the the client and the patient, um, their practice building. They, you know, they, they. You may not get every single one of them to come back, but um, it will be something that um, uh, is stuck in those people's minds forever. How those events were handled, and they will feel a natural affinity for a practice that does it in a um, a caring and sensitive way. Well, I think we've got another topic for another podcast, and that'll probably be number 49, I think, um, <laughs> that will make euthanasia and um, all the aspects re around euthanasia. And it's it's the only other comment I'd like to make on that is when we have uh, veterinary students um, at, at my clinic, I, I stress to them um, that when they're out seeing practice at other clinics, that, that one of the things they need to really concentrate on is those um, interpersonal skills and, and watching the vets do procedures like end-of-life um, euthanasias um, and, and get a feel for how the, the vets deal with that euthanasia because every client's different and some of them literally just want you to 
be blunt and, and, and tell them that um, they, they want their animal put to sleep and others you you need to go through all the lab results and all the tests and, and slowly let them let them um, realise the fact that their animal's terminal and, and that maybe quality of life is not there and it needs to be euthanised. Um, so, yeah, I think that's definitely something we need to um, um, have as a main topic um, in the future. Um, but it's not the topic today. Um, and before we get on to worms... Um, I can't help um, feeling like I need to scratch my bum when um, I talk about worms. And um, just quietly, um, we all had to um, worm ourselves in our family. Um, just you and me, Mark, that's all who know, and a couple of listeners. Um, there was um, some thread worms going around um, our, our family with one of an unnamed um, member of the family having an itchy bottom. Um, so we ended up with a trip down to the local chemist to pick up the worm tablets, and all's good. We have all been wormed. Um, so I think that's a pretty good introduction to the worming topic for today. But before we do that, I want to know what happened on your um, photography slash camping trip on the weekend that you mentioned to me that was happening last weekend um, and um, your glamping trip I think it's probably more likely than camping um, so tell me a bit about it and um, how did you go with um, your photography what did you manage to take some pics of I think we may have um, lost Mark there. Um, we'll see if he gets back, if um, if he does good. If not, I might just have to continue on with the main topic of the week. So, Mark, if you can, are you there? I think I can just hear that. How's, yeah, um, there we go. There we go. Well, how's that for a um, an unedited um, podcast? So we don't go back and edit these podcasts. It's sort of on the fly there. So, yeah, tell me about your camping trip, Mark. Well, it was awesome. I had a, uh, um, a great time. And one of the beautiful things about uh, the part of the world I live in is uh, proximity that um, we can – we've got a wide range of uh, – you know, relatively um, uh, wilderness areas that uh, within only an hour or two drive, we can be like way out there in the sticks. And I did uh, um, take Kate, my good wife, um, up to uh, the Frying Pan Creek um, campsite on uh, on the uh, Karua, the upwater, the headwaters of the Karua River um, in the Chichester State Forest. And uh, and we were lucky enough to get a, a quite a good campsite. It's often, um, on particularly on uh, holiday weekends, it can be particularly popular. Um, but um, there was only, um, there's 100 campsites there and there might have been 13 or 14 groups of people. So we had a good deal of space to ourselves and um, and, uh, and the weather was kind. And uh, and I did get quite a few decent bird shots. The, uh, the, I was also keen to try and, you know, this time of year, I'm a bit of a fan of trying to get some shots of reptiles, but crackies, they were scarce on the ground with the temperatures being what they were. So it was all birds, Brendan. And what is the story? But what what did you say the camping site's name was? Frying pan was that frying? Pan? And where where does that come from? Well, I think I'm I'm completely making this up. So it, um, someone may well find out in the future that this isn't the uh, the true story. But my I, while I was sitting there um, by the fire, um, trying to figure out why it may well be called this, um, I, I formed the opinion that um, like many of the landforms in our area, um, they acquired their names because of their physical structure, their, their appearance. So our hospital, in fact, is in the shadow of a hillock that's, um, that's uh, rather grandiosely named Mount Sugarloaf. Um, and of course, it gets its name from the approximate shape to a sweet loaf of bread that uh, many of the early settlers ate. Um, and I think frying pan... Um, was uh, was similarly named. It's a uh, has a path coming down to a relatively um, uh, dish shaped river edge um, grassy area, and I think it's as simple as it vaguely looks like a frying pan. Um, but um, uh, a name, what it, however the name came about, it's an excellent place to go and be close to some natural history. 
Well, I think you ended up sending me sending me two or three pictures from um, the ones you took, and the one I I've chosen to put up on our, our website, which is vetpodcast.blueberry.net, is um, I think the satin bowerbird one. So, um, was that a hard one? Um, to get that bowerbird um, to take that shot, it was it was a little bit difficult because the um, the you know I suppose the key thing at this stage of my photographic development is that when I first started taking photos of birds, I would you know just spray the the lens around and try and catch them wherever they were. Um, but um, I'm taking a lot more time now to try and frame the birds and and uh, observe them in spots that might give them a, a context that might give a, an artistic background a a, a, um, a a spot where they their their particular colors might be highlighted and um and I was pretty lucky that um, this male satin bowerbird um, a beautiful animal by any measure um, managed to find a spot in a beautiful uh, well-lit light green um, silky oak uh, a group group of leaves from the silky oak and he was there just long enough for me to frame it up and and uh, rattle off a couple of shots and uh, and I particularly enjoy often when I look at satin bowerbirds it's difficult their iridescence makes the detail of their plumage very difficult to appreciate but this photo um, I, I really enjoy the way that the uh, the symmetry and appearance of the feathers uh, um, comes out, and yeah, it's one of my favourite for the weekend. It's an excellent photo, and um, I encourage all our listeners to have a look at it. Um, and um, I think we might end up putting a photo of the week up as well every week, and it may not be just wildlife. We may put other things up there as well, like my dog Jesse that we had um, up there last week. Um, I think we should get on to our main topic, which people are probably getting um, a bit antsy about and um, they may be sitting in a traffic jam and thinking, just get on with it. So let's just get on with it. Um, so we're going to talk about worms and in particular intestinal parasites um, because I think we'll cover some of the common um external parasites of unusual pets and maybe eventually dogs and cats as well in other episodes. But um, I think our topic for this week is intestinal parasites of unusual pets. And talking off air, we, we thought we'd um, um, subdivide it into um, birds, reptiles and, and small mammals. And we'll have a little bit of a chat about the different types of parasites we see in these groups of animals um, or these species and also um, what we do as far as routine um, faecal checks um, in our clinics um, and probably, if we have time, touch on um, treatment regimes um, or at least um, some of the drugs that we think are effective. We may not um, mention um, dose rates in particular, but we'll um, make it on to um, discussion about which um, um, anti um, parasiticides we use in our practices. Um, and I think the first thing we need to sort of um, chat about is um, um, the number of um, faecal um, examinations we do. And, and um, for the unusual pets, um, I really stress it to um, my clients that um, we, we like to get um, regular poo samples from them, um, from their pets, <laughs> not from the clients. Um, and we do routine faecals for those animals um, at least once or twice a year. With some of the species, we'd be doing it much more regularly than that. It may be every every three months or even or more more often than that. Um, so we do lots of faecal checks, or, or certainly my nurses do lots of faecal checks um, in our practice. And um, the reason why, um, for those of you who don't treat or, or see many unusual or exotic pets, the reason why we do lots of regular faecal checks is because as a rule, um, and I'm sure you'll um, put your two cents in worth, Mark, um, we don't routinely worm um, most of these species. I suppose the exception would probably be some of the birds um, like chickens, etc., that we strategically worm. Um, but a lot of the others like the um, reptiles and, and the small mammals like the rabbits and the guinea pigs and, and the ferrets and the rodents, um, um, we don't recommend routine worming unless we've had a faecal check um, of that um, from that animal um, because we have good parasites um, that maybe sit in there helping digest um, 
gut contents and help him break things down or, or not do him any, any harm at all and are not pathogenic. Um, or we may have um, a parasite that may be causing an issue. So the advantage of doing these routine faecal checks is, one, I think it, it, it encourages clients to think about preventative health um, for their pets and it gets them in that mindset of, hey, we're, we're not overdoing things. We're not, not filling our um, pets with, with medications or drugs um, and with being more strategic or at least more sensible um, about um, deciding when to um, or not to treat um, um something that doesn't need treatment um, if that makes sense um, so it gets the clients into that mindset um, and also we get a good feel for um, what level of parasites we have in these these animals sure they may not be shedding the parasites on the particular day that the faecal was collected but um, for those that have high burdens of certain parasites and we'll talk about some of the classes of parasites that we see in these species um, we may then consider treating the animal or we may not um, so, Mark, if you could run us through um, um, the process that you do at your clinic with the routine faecals and perhaps if we um, then kick off about um, um, reptiles and, and we'll talk about maybe some of the commonly seen um, reptiles that we see and the faecals that we see and just generally um, mention the parasites that we um, um, detect in the faeces of some of these commonly seen pet reptiles. So the, um, the, the probably one of the other points that I would um, add to uh, your initial comments is that um, it is very difficult with some of our exotic pets to, you know, I think with dogs and cats, the, the concept of all wormers has, uh, has become pervasive and, and so people think that they can control all the parasites with a minimum, maybe even a single dose of uh, uh, parasiticide. And um, and for many of our exotic pets, that's just not going to be possible if we set them up, clients up with a particular protocol. In most instances, there's a good chance that we'll um, um, miss certain groups of parasites that need to be treated. And as you pointed out, we're likely to disturb the gut flora in significant ways in those species where the... the uh, the parasites may be actually exerting a positive effect. So, yep, our usual practice is to routinely for um, each of the exotic pets, at least at the exa annual examination or the depending on the the uh, class of animals we're talking about, um, it could be a biannual examination. Um, we would uh, ask for a, a fecal sample at that time and conduct a two simple tests. We would uh, uh, do a, a uh, smear uh, in warmed saline and we get that obviously as quickly as possible. Um, and while we're looking at that, we'd um, set up a fecal float with uh, intent to concentrate any uh, eggs or oocysts um, uh, that might be in very low numbers in the fecal sample. And um, as we look at the smear, obviously we're um, trying to make a, as well as uh, um, look at the the explore the presence of um, the parasites that might be there and try and formulate a, a bit of a, an idea of the proportion and uh, um, and and uh, number and variety of um, parasites that might be there. We look at the other uh, features of the stool. We try and appreciate whether it's um, it's uh, there's maldigestion going on. We try and appreciate if there's bacterial overgrowths, uh, monomorphic populations of bacteria. Um, these things can all give us clues as to whether the presence of parasites is associated with pathology. And probably finally, um, with the after we've um, had the smear off the microscope's uh, table and um, we've had a look at the the uh, float, um, we might stick a drop of iodine on the edge of the cover slip to um, to just highlight the presence of um, 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 some parasites and some objects of digestion that might not be as easily seen. So it is it's a bit of an involved process. Um, and as you said, it's good to have the support of um, of excellent veterinary nurses or veterinary support personnel, veterinary techs to um, to get that work all done for us. Um, it uh, it makes it um, doubly efficient if we've got that stuff all set up for us. 
So looking at poo, yes, um, it brings back memories of when I did my uh, master's uh, degree at um, at a zoo. Um, my dog's carrying on, you might hear her in the background. Um, that's Patch. I think she's had enough of my talking. Um, I did lots of um, snake faecal tech tests um, and faecal checks um, because my little minor thesis then was um, uh, cryptosporidiosis in um, Australian um, lapid snakes. Um, so that was, um, I got a little bit sick of um, doing faecals after I'd done um, probably well over a thousand of them. Um, so these days I tend to um, palm most of that off to my vet techs and my vet nurses and um, there's some of them who quite enjoy doing the faecal exams and then I just um, have a look when they find something um, that they're not quite sure of or, or um, high burden or, or something of interest um, I help out with that but yeah you can learn a lot from poo can't you you can learn a lot from, from poo so I think that the important bit um, for this intro on on intestinal worms in unusual pets is 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 the fact that um, we don't just shotgun treat all these animals um, so we're not looking at um, treating them um, regularly and, and treating for everything so we, we don't just blast them um, with a parasiticide to try and get rid of any intestinal parasites that are there because we can certainly upset that gut um, quite easily with them. Um, so the sorts of common things that we see, I think we should touch on um, some of the common parasites we see in all these um, these groups. Maybe if we start with um, reptiles, I think, um, and um, the common problems we see and, and um, in probably bearded dragons um, and juvenile bearded dragons are, are ones where I commonly see um, intestinal parasite problems and that's coccidia problems um, in bearded dragons and I'm sure you've had the same mark um, and um, usually the, the classic history with a, a, a juvenile bearded dragon that um, has clinical coccidiosis is that um, it may have only just been purchased recently um, from a pet shop or a breeder. It's a bit stressed, stressed out or it's a lot stressed out. It goes to this new home um, and and it's not doing well. So the NQR, as our US colleagues like to talk about, not quite right um, animal. So it might be a bit runty, not growing very well, not eating very well, not moving around very well. And the first thing I think about with these young bearded dragons um, is to do a faecal check on them. And typically, if I do see um, a clinical coccidiosis with them, um, it's confirmed by we see usually massive numbers of coccidia um, on the faecal float with them and these are probably the ones that I would then be reaching for a drug to to try and knock those numbers down and like a lot of these um, coccidia infections in in our mammals and our reptiles and our birds I think the aim there is to to help the body's natural immunity um, to the stage where they will become immune um, to that particular species that they've been exposed to, um, but not to the stage of where they become clinical with it. So it's getting them over that clinical infection if they're showing signs of um, coccidiosis and, and providing supportive care as well as treating that parasite number to try and get it down. Um, and then um, hoping that their body recovers from it. And I think we're fooling ourselves with most, of, virtually all of these species we're talking about, um, that that um, if we think we're going to get rid of that parasite, um, I think it's virtually impossible to get rid of the coccidia in these, in, in virtually all of these species. The whole aim is to just get the, get it to the stage where they haven't got large numbers that they're getting becoming clinical and becoming sick from the parasite and, and they still may intermittently shed that parasite. Um, Mark, you're about to say something. I, I was going to say a couple of things, Brendan. I was um, thinking that uh, um, the bearded dragons with coccidiosis, um, they they definitely are um, a big part of the work that we do and, uh, and I wonder whether the... the uh, because we'll often see clients bring these lizards into us, and the reason they bring them into us is not just NQR, um, but um, because they start to show signs of uh, um, calcium metabolism disorders that I think the coccidia do enough damage to the lining of the intestine that um, they start to fail to absorb the, the calcium that's in their diet, and despite 
um, all the the you know the clients following the husbandry advice and supplementing the um, the food with. Uh, extra calcium, um, these lizards just don't get it into their body. So um, the coccidia in particular can cause widespread uh, um, pathology in these lizards. And and the other thing I meant to draw everyone's attention to is that I think um, we do have a tendency to focus on the diagnosis and specific treatment with uh, uh, coccidiocidal drugs or maybe sometimes not coccidiocidal drugs, as uh, you alluded to, Brendan. But I think um, the practical hygiene aspect of it is something that I really do harp on a little bit with our bearded dragon clients, that uh, that they must uh, not uh, leave the enclosure for weeks on end with um, dried uh, bearded dragon stools, and uh, they really need to practice outstanding um, and um, prompt hygiene to remove the stools um, to prevent that fecal oral transmission and the remaining crickets the habit that uh, some clients have of tipping the the cricket container into the enclosure and allowing the crickets to remain there and of course the crickets will eat the stools and um, and maintain uh, numbers of coccidia in their gut that provide um, further access for transmission. So just fastidious cleanliness with these uh, desert animals who in the wild would rarely come into contact with uh, significant numbers of eggs because those eggs just don't survive in that environment. So they don't have the same immunity and they require that intense um, cleanliness to make sure their environment's not contaminated. Yeah, our um, our home care um, sheet for clients with uh, with uh, these beardies with coccidia is um, points out that exact thing you mentioned. We we we, we ask them to put the uh, the only substrate they have is newspaper, and that newspaper is changed um, at least every day, probably twice a day. Um, um, and those juvenile bearded dragons, as a general rule, I tend to recommend to clients that they don't have a, a substrate of, of, of a great depth, even though bearded dragons like to sort of um, scratch around in something with a bit of depth in those early months of the, that particular animal's life. I, I prefer to be on a bit more hygienic um, substrate there and um, just having newspaper as a substrate generally. So, yeah, we have that direct contamin- uh, direct infestation, direct um, um, life cycle there where the, the um, they can const- get a super infection really quickly um, with that coccidia. So, yeah, just giving it the coccidiocidal or coccidiostat drugs um, will not be effective on its own um, because you'll get that constant um, 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 reinfestation and, and contamination there from, from those factors you mentioned, um, um, which reminds me of one other thing, and that's the, the, the concept of... Um, pseudoparasites in reptiles so um, that's a term that was 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 coined um, for when you're looking at the feces from a reptile that you may see a parasite in the feces of a reptile that is not a parasite of the reptile itself it is a parasite of the prey item that was fed to the reptile so you need to differentiate where that particular parasite um, came from. So the classic example would be a snake that's fed on um, um, frozen, thawed or or recently killed um, rodents, rats or mice, um, and you're seeing parasites from that um, rodent passing through the snake and it doesn't cause any problems to the snake, but you will see it in the faecal of that snake. So you'll see things like the... um, uh, the tapeworm egg of the of the rodents, Hymenolepsis nana, I think it is, um, in in the feces. Um, so you need to sort of differentiate: is this a parasite of the uh, of the of the animal that we're we're getting the faecal from, or is it a parasite of the um, prey species that was fed to that reptile? Um, um, Mark, the other thing we should mention is um, some of the um, non-pathogenic um, parasites that we might see in reptiles um, in, in, in the faeces there and whether we use that um, as an indicator of general health for that animal. Do we ever ever worm out these animals um, for these supposed um, um, non-pathogenic um, parasites um, when they're in large numbers or not? Um, so I'd like your opinion on that and if you could just 
sort of yeah chat about the sort of species that we see yeah. and I'm, I'm talking about the penworms that we see with these these reptiles and and we often see um, quite you know impressive uh, um, evidence of pinworm infestation in our bearded dragons and surprisingly uh, they're they're most commonly seen in situations where the the um, lizards are not uh, necessarily showing clinical signs where we'll be doing one of our annual examinations and uh, and we'll pick this up. And as you've alluded to, Brendan, we're, we're often uh, um, pleased to see the fact that uh, um, these worms are uh, there because we know that when the lizards are on a good healthy diet that contains a significant amount of plant material um, the processing of that plant material is uh, is likely to um, lead it is likely to benefit from the physical pr- um, plowing through that these pinworms do and um, and we don't see a huge amount of pathology uh, as a result of these parasites being there um, so they aren't one that we immediately uh, leap up and down about and look to uh, um, apply antihelmintics to the the lizard um, we really take a step back and uh, have a look at um uh, how the lizard's going and whether there's pathology going on. And if there is, um, is it likely that the pinworms are contributing to that sort of a problem? Is that the the, uh, the tactic that you generally take, Brendan? Yes, yes. And I, and, I, and one other thing I like to do is we've, we've now got a... Um, a little um, camera attached to the microscope, and I love um, just bringing the clients through and showing them. Um, here's the parasites. Here's the eggs in your your animal. Um, it's even better when we have those live ectoparasites that we can show them. So it's showing them that you're actually doing something with those feces, and you're providing uh, um, information to them that they can look at physically, look at something, or um, and and say, hey, yes, my my snake or my bearded dragon or, or my rabbit or my bird does have parasites and um, um, it's great that my vet looks at these um, poos all the time and um, it's even better that they told me, look, it's got parasites in it but I don't need to do anything. Isn't that good? We're not over, over-servicing and we're doing the right thing by the animal and we're not throwing lots of lots of drugs down the throat of that um, particular animal. Um, now, now Brandon, I think it, when when you take when you show the clients these um, um, images, there's a there's an interesting thing that that happens in our practice when we do this, and I'm interested to know whether it happens with you as well. Um, have you ever been asked to um, send them copies of the pictures, take the pictures, and and send them copies? Absolutely, absolutely, and. Um Taking a picture of it's quite easy. Just you just hit um, record or snap it. It can record video as well. So, um, and then I'll just email it to them. And I, I think clients love you know as far as um, customer service um, um, and and getting them on board with with treatments and getting them interested in the preventative health aspects. Um, they love photos, don't they? Um, oh, they and, absolutely um, love them. They absolutely you know, do. I take before and after photos for new clients when I'm doing we do lots of rabbit dentals for instance and we do I take a before and after photo in surgery um and yeah picture definitely tells a thousand words for those ones no matter how much you try and explain to them on the dental charts um what how dystrophic the teeth were in that rabbit um showing them the picture of here's the teeth before and here's the teeth after I've reshaped the teeth um and or removed um teeth so so yeah they I don't know what they do with those fecal um, um, pictures. You know, maybe they print it up in a poster and put it above their bed at night. I, I maybe, have no maybe, idea. Maybe they end up on Instagram. Um, I'm sure they do. Um, as long as they don't end up any anywhere else apart from there um, and and in their pet, um, those non-pathogenic ones. I, I suppose we should – another app reminds me of zoonoses as well. So, um, you know, I think it's another important – reason why we should be doing these um, wellness checks of these animals and and, and doing our our pathology testing because um, especially when you're dealing with unusual pets, I think there's a higher incidence of 
diseases that potentially can be um, transmitted to humans. So we have to be really careful that we're making sure we're doing the right thing by the client as well as their pet as well. Um, um, yeah. What was I going to talk about? I was going to say, um, what drugs do you um, or anthemintics do you recommend for these bearded dragons that are clinical? They're unwell. They've got high numbers of the coccidia in the feces, and and we want to knock those numbers down. Um, so, what do you um, use, Mark? Well, we'd be routinely using toltrazuril, the um, Baycox, um, and uh, and we find that makes a. We, we really need a coccidiocidal drug. We need to knock the numbers on the head as quickly as possible. Um, the times that uh, um, we've been gentler, where we've. Uh, Tried amprolium in these lizards, they, they, the time frame is not enough to um, allow their immune systems to kick back in and, and deal with the uh, uh, non reproductive coccidia. They really need the coccidia to die pretty quickly. So, um, told Trazuril, it is um, at 25 milligrams per kilogram once a day for three days. Um, my recommendations would be similar. Yeah, I think I do vary sort of the dose rate with 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 um, with a lot of these drugs, um, um, depending on the individual. I, um, I I do find some of the individuals that you are treating tend to become anorexic um, with treating them, but we need to hit them pretty hard. I think um, with that, um, um, unfortunately, not all clinics will have that um, Baycox equivalent drug on on the shelf so they may end up having to use um, um, one of the other um, less effective ones like the yeah trimethoban sulfur um, drugs etc um, so um, if that's all you have then that's all you can um, really use with them but the whole aim is to yeah, knock those numbers down um, a, a, apart from the treatment regime and, and often I use the same um, regime you do um, with them and then repeat it again in um, Two weeks is what I usually recommend that that three day dose or so in two weeks, and then I ask the client to bring the animal back for a revisit um, in two to three weeks with a with a repeat fecal examination. And in between, they're doing fastidious um, cleaning of the enclosure. They've gone to that newspaper substrate that they're changing once a day, or at least um, once a day, maybe twice a day, if they've got time um, with them. And we'd be doing supportive care with that animal because often they're quite unwell, so we're we're also potentially doing things like force feeding them and, and giving them warm water baths, et cetera, um, with them. Yeah. So I think they're two of the common um, um, things we see, the coccidia and, and the pinworms in the bearded dragons. Um, um, we might move on to, and there's lots of other sort of intestinal parasite problems we may talk about in, in reptiles generally, especially when we get on to things like um turtles um but we'll, we'll leave that for now i think and we'll talk about um we'll jump over to the small mammals and we'll talk about um um I s probably the most commonly kept ones that people will be seeing in in general practice as rabbits i suppose so we might talk about that and for me we see a lot of rabbits and and um it's the same story we see a lot of young rabbits that are not doing well um they don't necessarily have um diarrhea um a rabbit with diarrhea is a true emergency in my opinion but it's a not quite right um young rabbit that may be a bit runty, not growing well, um, not eating very well. Um, the first thing I think about again, exactly like we we're talking about with the bitter dragons, is coccidia um, with them. So um, there, I think there's about twelve species of coccidia that's been reported in rabbits. Um, not all of them are, are pathogenic. Um, a few of them don't do much at all. Um, there's one particular nasty one that jumps into the liver, um, Eastide, um, um, which can be nasty. Um, and there's several that can cause the classic intestinal coccidiosis, which is the ones that we we see pretty commonly. I know you see a few rabbits up up uh, um, there, Mark. Um, do you see many um, um, clinical coccidia cases in young rabbits? We definitely do. It's uh, probably one of the, the – it's an interesting symmetry, I suppose, between the bearded dragons and the – the um the uh, the young rabbits that we see the the symmetry extends to the sort of country they like the sort of um, you know habits they keep and uh, and then once they become domesticated the the uh, problems that arise because of their natural history I suppose um, but yeah we definitely are on the lookout for 
um, for coccidia problems in uh, our young rabbits that just are not going well. And when we look for them, we regularly find them. And I, I still, and the opposite is true too. We 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 do our routine fecal checks for those adult rabbits um, that are, that are maybe coming in for their their routine vaccinations and just health checks, and they're apparently healthy and and, and no concerns with them. Um, and we will see um, coccidia in 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 low to occasionally moderate numbers um, in in those animals and my treatment for those is nothing I, I, I mark a note on the on the file um, for that animal on its history on the computer that that it had um, um, some coccidia there and if the rabbit is not unwell um, I may suggest a repeat of the um, fecal in several weeks but um, I don't do any treatment because it's probably just going through that intermittent shedding phase of the coccidia that we we never get rid of in that that animal and it has become immune um, after being exposed to the coccidia when it was young. Um, so that's the way I deal with those adult ones. Um, I, I presume you do similar, do you, Mark? I, I actually think that um, it, it, we do exactly the same thing and uh, and it is a little bit of a, um, a you know, where you've got a, an adult rabbit that um, is just not, doing perfectly well and you find coccidia, you, going down the pathway of treating them can um, lead you away from what might actually be the true cause. Um, so I think uh, a, a little bit of patience and uh, further observation and as you said, follow-up uh, fecal examination um, will give you more clues than leaping straight to the toltrazurel. That's a great point. It's it's looking at these animals, whether it's the adult rabbit or, or the adult bearded dragon, I suppose, that may be shedding um, coccidia that you hadn't seen on previous fecals in that animal, and the animal may be not quite right. Don't jump to the conclusion that it is just the coccidia that's causing the problem in that animal. So the coccidia is the canary in the coal mine or the, the coccidia in the gut um, is, is telling you that maybe um, we should be looking to see what is wrong with this animal. Why is it shedding um, these coccidia at that particular time? So why is it immune system compromised a little bit or a lot um, in order for it to start shedding that that, that particular parasite. Um, so the parasite is, I suppose, easiest way to put it is secondary, I suppose, to the to, to the to some other underlying issue or issues that's happening in that that particular um, animal at that time, yeah. Um, what other, Brendan, when you're doing your um, examinations of uh, um, adult, the, the particularly the stools of um, adult rabbits, is there um, anything else that um, that turns up routinely that uh, you, you're sort of excited to see but um, take no further action? Um I think that's a leading question. I better get the answer right. It's almost like I'm sitting on <laughs> an exam here. <laughs> I think you might be talking about the yeast um, that exactly. we see um, in these rabbits. There you go. I passed my oral examination. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm going to go and have a beer now um, as soon as we finish this. Yeah, so um, routine, same with guinea pigs as well. We haven't mentioned guinea pigs yet, um, um, We especially rabbits. And they've changed the name of that, that yeast that's in there. It used to be called Saccharomyces, did it? Is that correct or is that the, the original name? But um, I should know um, because I sometimes mention it to students. I can't, I've forgotten it off the top of my head, but there is a particular rod-shaped yeast that should be in what I, I call it moderate numbers in in um, low to moderate numbers in 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 a normal fecal um, smear and and certainly in the fecal flotation as well um, um, in a normal animal. So if we have either zero of those um, yeast in in a fecal um, and forgetting about the parasite eggs or, or um, that we may see, or we have lots of those yeast in, in the faecal, um, I'd be starting to think we have a dysbiosis in that rabbit. So something's not quite right with that gut in that rabbit and um, things are not working right. Maybe it's got a bit of gut stasis or ileus going on. Um, there's something happening. The gut's not working properly, digesting properly. Um, the gut bugs and, and good bugs and bad bugs and, and, and the gut flora and fauna are not... Um, 
in equilibrium like they should be. Yeah, great point. Um, it's probably another one that the clients might want to take home a picture of that, I suppose. It's always a, to put up. It's always a good one to, um, particularly if you've got a a, a kelpie that's um, keen on on consuming some rabbit droppings. They they'll off those yeasts. Cynoclomyces. They changed the name just as soon as I learned to pronounce the the, the current version, but. Um, they uh, they'll often turn up in dog droppings, do- examination of drug, dog stools, and uh, and of course they're generally uh, assumed to be um, um, innocuous and uh, um, just the result of uh, an unfortunate habit. So um, they're good for uh, students to be aware of as well. So that probably we, you've probably just invented a new term there, pseudo pseudo yeast um, yes. in, in the feces of a dog. Yeah, um, so you need to different differentiate the yeast that's going through that dog that from the feces of the rabbit that it ate, um, um, that swallowed a fly. Um, yeah, so um, that's yeah. I have to remember that one. That's a good one. Um, Okay, so we should move on. Look, we're up to 50 minutes already. We've done it again. Um, we should move on to treatment for these ones. And and what other normal um, or, or good parasites do we see in rabbits? Guess what? We're seeing the pinworms as well um, in, in rabbits a lot. So same story. I don't worry about them unless we see um, high numbers or potentially moderate numbers in a, in a rabbit that's unwell for other reasons and we're looking for what the other cause of the disease processes in that rabbit are and we may or may not knock over the numbers a little bit. I mean, my thoughts on those are if, if I have really high numbers of pinworms in any of these groups of species and, and the animal's unwell, yes, we number one look for why is it unwell apart from um, those parasites that are in the feces but I often will knock over the numbers and try and get them down a little bit and, and my treatment of choice for that is Femendazole which is the Panicure brand um, that we have in Australia and I just give them a one soft dose of that to try and knock the numbers down a bit. I think there's a bit of controversy about whether or not you should do that whether they'll just normalise without doing that and uh, there are some Patients that I see with really high numbers of pinworms that I do nothing and they seem to settle back down again when you treat the primary cause or causes, but um, some of them I do hit them. So um, I don't think there's much actual hard evidence out there. Um, nobody's done a decent study that I've seen that will show that we should or shouldn't um, be, be um, um, treating these pinworms when we have really high numbers. Um and I and I follow exactly the same pattern as you. That um, if I've got uh, an animal that has a serious illness, I rarely think that the the uh, pinworms are likely to be primary pathogens. They are almost invariably um, out of balance because of something else. But I still think that um, once they are in very very large numbers, they they probably interfere with um, some of the normal functions of the um, gastrointestinal flora um, and trying to get them back to a more normal number is going to take one stress away from that patient. So I think there's good intuitive logic, but as you say, there's not a lot of um, great data on the ground to back you up one way or the other. Um, But I think, uh, well, I think both you and I do the same thing. So uh, hopefully um, that's a good starting point. Good. Okay, so birds. So you can talk about birds because you've just been out um, taking lots of pictures of birds. So what are the common parasites we see in birds? And I think but the difference that we're going to talk about with birds compared with our small mammals and our reptiles is the, is the process of doing strategic or seasonal um worming um, or parasite treatments for them, which we do tend to do, don't we, in certain species of commonly kept birds? And particularly uh, in uh, backyard poultry, one of the really growing areas of, um, of our practice, we're seeing more and more uh, people come to us with, uh, um, with their, their small flock of backyard chickens, and, and they are definitely one of the species that we would, um, would be very, very keen to put a, a proactive um, strategic planning uh, plan in place of parasite control. Um, if we don't do that, we regularly find we get to a point where things um, destabilise and we get into trouble. So, um, particularly with our poultry, uh, but also our aviary birds, and uh, um, we do have uh, 
um, particular species, um, uh, the the uh, Neophema group and um, the princess parrots who, once again, uh, dryland and desert birds who rarely come into repeat contact with fecal material and so have poor resistance to um, uh, repeated insult from parasites. Um, they, they're species that we would want to put routine uh, strategic worming in place for as well. Uh. So what's, okay, so you need to, let's briefly talk about, or you can talk about, Mark, um, what do you mean by strategic worming? How often are you doing that for, say, let's let's take a couple of the commonly kept um, species that general practitioners may have seen. So our backyard chicken, or chook as we call them in Australia, um, what are your recommendations for routine um, um, worming? How often do, do you recommend doing that, apart from doing a routine faecal check as well? And also perhaps with some of the other commonly kept birds that general practitioners may see, let's, um, for instance, budgerie, Gars, canaries, um, um, the commonly kept, kept um, or held parrots. Well, the uh, it depends a little bit on the way that they're kept. I suppose we do try and, um, as you were saying at the beginning, tailor our plan to um, to the specific uh, circumstance that um, the bird is in. Um, so. You know, um, a lot of the budgerigars that we would get to see would get to see would be uh, um, uh, deer pets that um, spend all their time inside with their owners. Um, they wander around the house, and so their um, droppings are, um, are, are routinely cleaned up. And uh, so those birds, we might actually just be doing our um, biannual physical exam and faecal examination and not putting anything specifically in place. Um, but for our backyard poultry, we would almost guarantee that we're going to uh, be administering um, in-water medication um, uh, probably uh, once every six weeks in the uh, spring and summer months, um, and we might spread that out to once every couple of months in the cool months of the year. Um, we definitely, uh, coccidia treatment, uh, absolutely critical for um, those uh, backyard poultry. It regularly ends up being a, a significant problem if we don't put a a, uh, a proactive plan in place and we would be um, uh, we sort of use the turn of the um, season as a bit of a guide each um, three months we would treat them for five days with um, an in-water coccidiostat and prolium um, and we would also treat them anytime that we have more than three continuous days of rain um, that uh, extra moisture on the surface of the soil increases the number of coccidia oocysts that survive dramatically um, and uh, so an additional treatment at that time is an essential thing. Um, There's one other parasite I think that um, is specific and to birds that can be quite difficult to deal with and um, you might see it in... in um, in let me think finches for instance um do you want to talk about that we regularly you're exactly you've um and this is one of the reasons that we've got to make sure that we do these um uh, fecal examinations because there is no like broad general rule of thumb to go with um in these uh you know you can't treat all the birds all the animals of the uh, class aves the same way they do have their individual peculiarities and um, with the finches we definitely see finches dying from tapeworm infestations and uh, so uh, our routine uh, fenbendazole or maybe moxidectin um, those treatments that we might employ routinely are not going to uh, um, treat the tapeworms that uh, will kill finches um, and we've got to have some form of treatment that includes praziquantel um, and our choice at the moment is to use the um, Oxfendazole Praziquantel worm out gel uh, product from um, Vetifarm uh, when we're treating our finches to make sure that tapeworms are not an ongoing problem. Yeah, with the few um, finches that I deal with or have dealt with it, it's 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 a bit of a worry, isn't it? Trying to balance, trying to uh, get rid of the tapeworms and and not get rid of the um the finch um, at the same and it, time. And it's particular, partic it's what that unique circumstance where, um, you know, many of our patients, we can have them in our hand and, uh, and, um, and uh, treat them as an each 
patient, as a, each animal as an individual patient. Our finches, on the other hand, we're often constrained to treat them as the whole flock as the individual patient. And, and oftentimes it's difficult to be in a circumstance where we can catch each one up individually and, uh, and treat them. So they are, they are all, they have all have their own like idiosyncrasies and peculiarities, Brendan. And it's a challenge, but a fun challenge, I think, dealing with some of those large aviaries. And and I've had to um, deal with a large aviary on, on an ongoing um, um, time frame with with a, a zoo type um, huge open aviary that's open to. It's got a big mesh um, roof that's open to um, um, wild birds um, sitting on top of that, and potentially wild birds and some of the smaller wild birds getting into that aviary and. Um, it's a bit of a mathematical um, quiz trying to work out how are we going to provide let's tapeworm treatment for 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 the animals that are in that um, in it's a really large enclosure um, a walk through aviary um, in a zoo um, to um, provide enough of the product um, for that particular um, species that we're trying to target in the aviary. So it's you know, it, it, it's 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 working out how many grams or milligrams per per kilogram or, or, or gram of food that you put down for them, and hope that on average each each bird made it eat x grams of food and within that x gram of food hopefully you've mixed up x milligrams of of the praziquantel so i i think when 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 you get to that sort of um scale all we're really trying to do is trying to keep the numbers down um and and strategically um trying to trying to stop them getting the levels of the parasites that um um are going to have them dropping out of the trees um with them um so i find that a challenge but a fun challenge dealing with those sort of processes you know because you 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 it's like going back to university. You read the textbooks, and and you, you're taught give this dose of this particular drug to treat this particular parasite. Um, but then you get out there in the real world, and and um, you know how the hell do you get that um treatment into the animal? How do you get the animal to eat that thing? Can you catch up that bird to individually dose it? And the good thing with pet birds is you can certainly do that in the vast majority of cases unless it's a, a big aviary you can individually dose the animal so you can be much more accurate and that's always the obvious um, best way to do it um, otherwise you're left with sort of in feed um, medication as the second best is what I'd regard and then I'd regard in water medication as probably less effective um, because of the possibility that if we have a hot day or a cold day that bird may drink a lot on one day or, or not drink much at all on the on the next day um that's sort of my general approach to worming them have you got any tips about trying to worm those ovaries um mark no i think you've you've highlighted the 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 problem and and like you i um enjoy the challenge but um i don't know that there's any magic formula for for um solving the problem it's a a process of trying to understand the inhabitants of the aviary and uh and to take into account Count those external factors like the birds over the top. Um, though I have to say that, in my experience, the the contamination by the um, the birds that rest on the the um, the aviaries is less of a worry than um, obviously has to be taken into account. But um, it's often something that worries people quite a lot. And uh, generally, it's um, it's the parasites that the birds carry into the aviary themselves that they spread amongst themselves that cause most of the problems. Yes. So the fun of being an exotic vet, hey, Mark. Um, well, I think we've. Um gone well over time we've hit the one hour and three minutes and um i reckon most people switched off by now anyway and our numbers of subscribers are going to dramatically decrease for next week but hopefully not because i think we've got a really good topic for next week and i'm not going to announce the topic until we actually release um the episode next week so our aim is to continually release an episode every week and we usually release it um on a friday um Australian time so I suppose that's um it's Thursday in the US isn't it um and a lot of the rest of the world are a little bit behind us here in Australia aren't they Mark uh, in more ways than quietly. one in more ways than uh, one 
So we'll just keep quiet about that because we do have a lot of um, um, USA subscribers, as I said. Um, I'd just like to have, a, just before we go, a shout out to um, one group of subscribers we have, um, and that's in Singapore. And I was quite surprised that we have a, a following in Singapore. Um, that's fantastic. Um, so keep it up and um, let's get the numbers up there. Singapore, you can climb the climb the table and end up being um, a, um on top if you keep going um the way way we've got the subscribers um joining up from singapore it's really good to see so um so i think we'll end it on that and um we do want people to give us topics um um um, lists of topics or, or, or ideas about things we can talk about for our main topic um or even minor topics or tell us some vet news um you may even want to send us an email and um let us plug a book you have, um, for instance. So we're, we're open to all those sorts of things. So if you go to our vet, um, vetpodcast.blueberry.net um, or search on iTunes, um, which is where most of you, by the look of our statistics, have, have found us, um, click on the iTunes link and you'll see the link to our podcast um, webpage and our email address is in there as well. So um, we look forward to hearing from some of you, hopefully, fairly soon. Um, and it looks like the outro music has kicked in. It sounds pretty relaxed this week, Mark, doesn't it? Um, pretty relaxed. It's Lee Rosevear again, the Canadian um, um, artist that we used from last week. Um, and maybe one of our listeners is a muso and they can send us in some music of their their latest album and we'll put that on our outro or maybe even our intro um, for next week so until next week thank you all for listening and yeah tell all your vet friends and your vet tech nurses um, friends and vet techs um, and vet students Um, we've got a lot of vet students as subscribers so um, yeah put the word out and um, hopefully you'll listen to us next week Bye for now.